John 16, if you want to make your way there in your Bibles. So the fourth of the four Gospels. So if you make your way to the beginning of the New Testament. And then you want to go Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. If you are in the New Testament and in any book other than Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, go to your left. Um, so I'm going to uh, be talking about surprise for everyone, joy today. Um, I know I talk about joy a lot, but in conversations I've had with people over the past year or so, um, I've realized that maybe I haven't made this as concrete an idea uh, from a Christian perspective as I would have hoped. Um, so I'm going to give you a, a definition, hopefully, today. I'm going to make clear what uh, is counterfeit joy, what is the opposite of joy, and how do you get joy? How do you achieve it? How do you make it a part of your life? Um, we're going to do so by doing some exposition of John 16, 16 through 24, as well as looking about uh, throughout the scriptures about some scripture about throughout the scriptures about uh, passages on joy. So we'll start in John 16, if you will follow along with me, 16 through 24. <clears throat> a little while you will see me no longer, and again a little while you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me? Again, a little while you will see me? And because I am going to the Father, so they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you were asking yourself, what I meant by saying, A little while you will not see me, and again a little while you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. <coughs> when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being is being born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. Let's pray. Father, we uh, are a people that uh, mess about uh, in uh, shallow endeavors when you desire a full joy for us. We go through life thinking that in a lot of ways the idea of joy is taboo, that happiness is uh, something to be refrained upon in some ways, or that it is uh, the only thing worth pursuing and the only place to find it is in this world. And I just pray today as we dive into your truth and into your scripture that you'll speak to us about what joy is, how it is essential to who you are in your design of this world. It's essential to your the calling of your church and who we should be as your church. It is uh, one of the greatest testimonies of your deity to a fallen and broken world. A church that has joy, that is full in happiness. May you uh, help us to know how to find it. How to make it real in our lives. And how, because of that, we can be a testimony to your, your Godship. In your name we pray. Amen. 
So again, I want to just kind of do some quick exposition of uh, John 16, 16 through 24, and then try to uh, use some of that as well as some other scriptures to give us a definition of joy, talk about what is the opposite of joy, uh, what is counterfeit of joy, and then how do we cultivate joy in our lives? How do we bring it into our life? Um, so one of the first things that we see here is that joy is uh, an essence uh, of being a Christian. It is essential. If you call yourself Christian, it should be evident in your life. Um, we see in John 16, 22, it says, So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. So he doesn't say, you have sorrow now, and I will come back, and then some of you will get joy, and some of you might not have it. Some of you might understand how to get there. He says, when I come back, you all will have joy. It is there when I come back. It is going to happen. So joy is not a secondary tenet of Christianity. It is not a minor thing that we kind of get as a benefit to this whole Christian thing. It's an essential doctrine. It is something that Jesus says will exist for anyone who understands my coming back. In 23 through 24, we saw it. He says, uh, in that day, you will ask nothing of me. And truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. He doesn't, uh, he doesn't say that if you come to me, you might get some partial joy. If you come to me, I'll give you direction to joy. If you follow me, I'll give you this good advice that will show you how to achieve it. He says, if you pray to the Father in my name, seeking God in the way that you would if you knew who I am, then your joy will be full. I've talked many times here about Trinity, so if you don't, if you haven't heard me talk about Trinity, um, this doesn't make sense to you. See me afterwards, ask me. But we talk all the time about Trinity and how part of the essential doctrine of the Trinity is the fact that there is one God, eternally existent, in three persons, both at the same time. For eternity. And within that one God, those three are in relationship with each other, in sacrificial, loving relationship with each other. They are full of joy because of that relationship. And out of that desire, uh, out of a desire to share that joy that they have within themselves, they create the world. And so we've talked many times about how there is joy within God and Born out of that joy was the desire to create, to share that joy. Um, there's this really strange but beautiful picture in Proverbs 8 where wisdom is talking. And wisdom also is talking about how he was there with the creator during creation. Oh, excuse me for a sec. And he says, uh, then I was... In Proverbs 8, verses 30 and 31, is that he says, uh, Then I was beside him like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world, and delighting in the children of man. In John 1, we're s we see this picture Chris uh, preached on uh, the beginning of John uh, uh, last year in, uh, in John 1, we saw this picture of Jesus was with God during creation. And Jesus was working with God in creation. And that Jesus is the word, is wisdom, is truth. And so what we see is in, Roman, er, in Proverbs 8, it's pointing to Christ. And so we see this picture of Christ in Proverbs 8. Again, first off, again, uh, rejoicing and delighting in his relationship with the Father, and the Father delighting his in his relationship with the Son, but we also see him rejoicing in the Father's inhabited world. 
delighting in the children of man. And this word delight in the Greek is a word, sasha shien. Or sasha ashien. And it means basically to have pleasure. But not just pleasure, too, um, like to frolic and joy, to jump in happiness. And so we see this picture in scripture of Jesus taking such pleasure in the creation of God, us, in humanity, and in this world, that he, he abounds in joy. His pleasure is so full that he, he's moving in happiness. In Zephaniah 3, 17, we see, it says, The Lord, our God, or your God, is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. And so his love for us, his joy in us leads him to uh, sing loudly, to share his happiness in song. Joy is an, an essential doctrine of Christianity. It's not a secondary thing. The gospel, many of you have heard it said, the gospel is, uh, what it means is good news. And uh, the uh, KJV does one, uh, KJV does a, a great job. It, it says uh, it's glad tidings. In other words, it's, it's news that makes one glad, that makes one happy, that delights the heart. Uh, the great uh, British theologian, pastor, uh, preacher Charles Spurgeon said, Thou canst not tell what showers of mercy, what streams of benediction, what mountains of joy and hills of happiness shall be thine when Jesus comes and reigns in thy soul. Joy is essential in the Christian doctrine. Joy is something that exists in God, was designed to exist in his creation, which he has joy in, and will be evident in those who understand his coming back. Joy, we see, also overlaps with sorrow. So he says in verse 21, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into this world. So he's trying to comfort his disciples. You see, he's been going on this. Uh, this is the, the third chapter in which he's having this long discourse with his disciples over the fact that he's soon to be leaving them but he will return. He started in chapter 14, and we're uh, still continuing in 16, um, which is going to continue in his prayer in 17 as well. Um, but his disciples are, are sad. They're struggling with this idea of Jesus leaving them. And so he's trying to, f to teach them his plan. He's trying to help them to see what's coming, or uh, he's trying to set up them to be able to see what's coming when it comes and then afterwards to understand it and so he says that he has this analogy i'm not an expert on childbirth so um i uh speak uh only from what i i know uh, others have said to me but one of the realities of childbirth is that uh it is painful and the consequences of childbirth do not end when the baby is out for the mother. There's still pain. There's still things that need to be healed. There's still issues from the childbirth that she is going through. But yet, when she sees the child, there's a stronger experience. Doesn't negate the fact that there's still pain that still exists but there's a greater emotion, a greater experience with the birth of the child. And so joy happens sometimes at the same time as sorrow. We know this too um, because uh, 
Jesus, again, was a man of joy. But yet, in Isaiah's description of, of the Savior in 53.3, this is what he says. He was despised and rejected by man. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. So Jesus, this God, man, full of joy, also a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Why would we expect different than Christ's experience here in this world? We see in the midst of sorrows, we see Christ in the midst of sorrows throughout the Gospels. We see him crying numerous times, sometimes to the point uh, where his sorrow has uh, made blood come out as sweat. Um, we see him crying over the loss of people. We see him crying over the consequences of sin. We see him driven by sorrow, but we see as well a joy that leads him to freely give his life to remove eventually people from that sorrow. It won't happen immediately for us, so we will go through life with joy and sorrow as Christians here in this world. Hebrews 12, 1 through 2 tells us, uh, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So because of this joy, Jesus could go to the cross. He could see our suffering. He could know it. It could be his. And yet in his joy, he can go to the cross so that his joy can be ours. Uh, if you remember Job, in the beginning of Job, when Job is losing all these things, one of these things that one of the things we're told about uh, joy, Job's experience as he's going through these things. It says he, he's ripping his clothes and he's pouring ashes on his head and he's hitting the dirt and he's crying out. And I think a lot of us would say he clearly <laughs> is sinning if we saw him do these things. But the Bible tells us that in these things he sinned not. It is not a sin to know sorrow. You are in the wrong if you know sorrow without also knowing joy. But joy does not remove us from sorrow here in this world. We see joy is permanent and deep. Again in verse 22. So with you now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. You will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. If our joy is found in him, it's dependent upon him, then it is not found or dependent upon any earthly circumstance. There's nothing in this world that could take it away from us. There's no loss in this world that could take it away from us. If it is found and dependent upon him, and he says, you will have it because I'm going to die for you and come back to life and give you my joy, then it is ours forever. It is permanent, and there are no circumstances to which it can be removed. And it is deep. Deep enough for one to die and raise from the grave so that we can have it. So good that it is what allowed one to die in order for us to have it. Joy is really produced by Christ. Again, it comes through him going away and coming back. And he doesn't go away and come back and then say, in what you saw me do as I went away and came back, now you can go and do. He doesn't come back with a vice. He comes back with a gift of joy. He's 
going to die. He's going to return triumphantly over our sins and our selfish pursuits of joys and things other than him. And he's going to give us the real thing. It comes from him. You can turn to Romans 5. We're going to read 2 through 11 together. So if you're in John still, you just want to go a couple books to your right. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. Romans 5, 2-11. In him we have also attained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that sufferings produce endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now we are reconciled. Shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. He died for us while we were still sinners, the one truly holy, joyful being in this world who knew sorrow but wasn't controlled by it because he had a joy that allowed him to freely live right to the point of death on a cross for us who are controlled by our sorrows controlled by our mornings, who live in search for something to fill that void, to bring peace in the morning. He did so in our selfishness before we could do anything different than that. And he reconciled ourselves to him through his blood. And we rejoice. And we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that sufferings produce endurance, produce patience, produce a trust, a standing true with God in our pain. And our endurance produce character. It changes who we are. It brings us into holiness. And character produces hope. It allows us to see the truth of who God is and how he's changing us and growing our hope in him, growing our trust in him. Psalm 16, 5 through 11, if you want to turn there, you can probably flip somewhere towards the middle of your Bible. Um, You might find Proverbs, you might find Psalms. If you're in Proverbs, go back to your left and find Psalms. You don't have to turn there if you don't want. Uh, I'm going to read 5 through 11. A beautiful picture of what is the inheritance of those who have been saved by the blood of Christ. Psalm 16, 5 through 11. The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to shield or let let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life in your presence. There is fullness of joy 
at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. What a beautiful picture. Uh, we, in, as we grow in our understanding of God, we grow in our understanding of our own selfishness, of our own brokenness. But because of the blood of Christ, he won't let God see our corruption. God sees the holiness of the blood of the Son when he sees us. When he judges us as worthy of being in relationship with him, of having his joy, he doesn't see our brokenness, our corruption. He sees his Son's blood. He gives us counsel. He instructs our heart. He leads us into joy because he corrects us. Not only does he forgive us of our sins, not only does he not judge us by our sins any longer, he leads us out of sin. He leads us into holiness. Guilt is a good, is a good thing given to us by God because it allows us to know when we've fallen short and points us to his grace. But it is not something that is going to be forever present in our life because he's going to lead us from sin, which leads us to guilt going to instruct us and guide us into holiness. He's going to remove us from guilt. He removed us from the consequences of guilt already, but someday we won't even know guilt any longer. He won't abandon us. He'll make known to me the path of life. He's going to make known to me joy. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. We, we like to tread very lightly when we talk about happiness in the church. And that's fine. I'm not going to make an argument for whether you should talk about happiness the way I talk about happiness. If you don't want to. If you want to make a distinction between happiness and joy, do it correctly. But don't do it in the sense of negating the desires of your heart. The gospel is not that you have longings that you need to die to. The gospel is that you need to die to finding the answer to your longings in the things of this world because in God, you will find the answer to all your desires. And only in God. You have the pleasures of your heart in God. So what is the definition of joy? Um, I, I find uh, John Piper's definition to be my favorite uh, that I've seen so far, I believe. Um, this is what he says. Christian joy is a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the word and in the world. Let me read it one more time. Christian joy is a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the word and in the world. Let me go through this and uh, we'll remember some of the things we've talked about so far. The first thing he says is it's a feeling. Um, it's not an intellectual idea only. Um, we in Christianity try to over-intellectualize things at times, and me as uh, especially at times, I, I, I try to intellectualize everything. Um, but joy is not that. Joy is a feeling. It's emotion. It is to connect ourselves to, to something good, real, and true that we were created to know and be connected to. And that meets the full desires of our hearts. So it's an emotion. It's a state of being. It's a feeling. So one of the things about feelings is they're sometimes beyond our control or always beyond our control. 
We can't always feel what we want to feel, what we know we should feel in certain situations. There are times when something happens to someone that we know we should mourn over, but we find joy in it, or we think we find joy in it. So we're told all throughout scripture that we're, we're, there are commands for us to rejoice, to fear, to be grateful, to be tenderhearted, to stand in awe. And we know these are, these are feelings. These are our emotions. They're states of beings that we can't just demand ourselves to feel, experience. They're beyond our control. St. Augustine so wisely uh, says this. Father, command what you will and grant what you command. So command us to be joyful, but give it to us. Command us to fear, but give us that fear, that reverence. Give us that awe. Feelings are beyond our control, and we're going to talk more about this in a little bit, but... um, It goes in line with what we were saying. Our joy does not come from ourselves. It doesn't come from our experiences in this world. It comes from Christ. And if it comes from Christ, it's beyond our control. Second thing he says, it's in the soul. Christian joy is a good feeling in the soul. And what he's drawing our attention to is, is that it is not of the body. Joy certainly leads to uh, physical things that might happen to our bodies. We might tear up in happiness. Our hearts might quicken at the thought of something exciting that's about to happen or just happened. We might get butterflies in our stomach, you know, in anticipation of something exciting that's about to come. But those things are not joy. They are consequences of joy. They are things that result from it. Uh, The word used uh, for joy here in John 16 uh, in the Greek speaks of a cheerfulness, a calm delight, gladness, or greatly exceeding in joyfulness. So joy is, is not negated to an idea. It's not negated to a desire for something or a pursuit of something. Joy is an experience that does lead to consequences that happen in our bodies, yes, but it is not those things. It is the state of being. It is the experience and the emotion of happiness in the soul. The soul is the immaterial part of personhood. It's what experiences joy. The body may feel the effects of it. It's produced by the Spirit. It's a fruit of the Spirit. So again, we can't control it. It's produced by the Spirit in our life as a result of what Jesus did for us. And so he says, uh, it's produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the word and in the world. The Holy Spirit does this work, and he doesn't uh, do it uh, magically without, any, uh, without uh, our mind being engaged, though, but by causing us to see the glory and beauty of Christ, by bringing to our mind who Christ is, what he, his de- who Christ is, his love for this world, that led him to die for it so that he can give it his joy. Earlier in John 16, if you want to go back to John 16, I'm going to read 17 through 15. Sorry, 7 through 15. Did I say 17 through 15? 7 through 15. Jesus says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. 
concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the world, or because the rule of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And all that the Father has is mine. Therefore I say he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So again, we see this picture of Trinity working together to bring forth joy that they experienced in themselves. So the Father is directing the Son. The Spirit is coming after the Son, proclaiming who he is and his good work in dying for us and bringing himself back to life so that he can bring us to life so that we can know that joy that he desires us to have through salvation. But the Spirit comes to us as a gift to allow us to see the beauty of who Christ is. We can read these stories about who Christ is and intellectually see him as a good person. To understand some of these good character traits. To even understand perhaps part of what his goal is. But to really know it. To really experience it. To find its real beauty in the way that leads you to joy. You need the Holy Spirit. Verse Peter 4.13 tells us, But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So the Holy Spirit comes along and allows us to rejoice in the sufferings of Christ because in that his glory is revealed to us. And that is the job of the Holy Spirit, to reveal that glory. Acts 2, uh, 28 says, You have made known to me the path of life, and you will make me full of gladness in your presence. The Holy Spirit uh, reveals to us the fullness of who Christ is. And part of who Christ is, as we, he told us in John 16, is his oneness with the Father, with the Creator. You have made known to me the path of life, the design for this world from its very beginning. And you will make me full of gladness in your presence. And again, we read uh, Psalm 16, 11 earlier. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Keller, uh, Tim Keller uh, has a... Uh, an, another good definition of joy. He says, joy is the buoyancy that results from the enjoyment of the unchanging privilege we have in God. Um, so to delight in something is to be light in it, to not be burdened by it, but to be lifted up by it. Buoyancy is to, to, to be light, so you, you stay afloat above. You aren't swallowed by. We may have a whole lot of stuff going in our, on in our life, but joy is not, again, joy is not the opposite of sorrow, of, of junk, of pain, of suffering. Joy is the ability to stay afloat above it. We're not swallowed by it. We're not destroyed by it. Glory in the Bible is uh, uh, defined as something that is weighty that is, is large, that is significant. So to, to give glory to something is to give it weight, to give it import, significance. And for us, when we bask in the glory of God, when we understand the weight of who God is, it lifts us up. See, we're heavy apart from the glory of God because everything is on us. All the sorrows of this world are on us. But when we understand the weight of who God is, how he died for us, his plan for us in the sorrows of this world, and to bring us out of those sorrows, 
the weight shifts from us to him and we become light. We become lifted up. We become free. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 says, uh, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So you, you mourn differently. You experience sorrow differently. You do not do it as the world does. Because the weight has shifted from you to God. God's weight never changed, but our vision of it through Christ's gift and the Holy Spirit's work changes and it lightens us. What's the counterfeit of joy? The counterfeit of joy is the feeling that comes when we rest in our blessings and not our blesser. It's putting our hope in the maker's good things and not our maker. So God gives us glimpses of joy in his good things. And we go through life desperate for good things because we are people of sorrow. If, if the reality of joy is it's only found in God, then the reality of people who don't know God is a lack of joy. Uh, we talked about that picture of a, a woman who gives birth and her pain doesn't cease, but there's a joy that is overwhelming to it that she doesn't remember the pain. We're fairly comfortable temperature-wise in here. That does not mean that the temperature of our neighborhood is warm right now. We're surrounded by cold. But in here, there's a heater that turned on that has overwhelmed the coldness. The reality of people separated from God is there's no heater. There's nothing overwhelming the cold. The only thing they know is sorrow and mourning. What they desperately need to see in us is a people who have a heater. We act differently in here right now because the there's a heat that has overwhelmed the cold than we would if we were outside. We dress differently in here right now than we would if we were outside. So too, we dress ourselves in a holiness as a result of the Spirit's work in our life in a world of sorrow because we have a heater that has brought joy into our life. We should act differently, mourn differently, live in uh, our life differently than those who don't have that salvation, that grace, that mercy, that joy. We don't long for the things of this world. That doesn't mean we think they're bad. That doesn't mean that we don't think they're important at times. It means we don't think they're ultimate. It means we don't think we absolutely need them for our joy and we don't therefore die to ourselves for those things. We don't give ourselves to those things. We don't live for them. C.S. Lewis says uh, this about uh, happiness. He says, uh, what Satan put into our heads of our remote ancestors was an idea that they could be like gods, could set up on their own as if they had created themselves, be their own masters, invent some sort of happiness for themselves outside of God, apart from God. And out of that hopeless attempt has come nearly all that we call human history, money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empire, slavery, the long terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is, excuse me, there is no such thing. See, we go through life and we experience these things and what happens is in those experiences, the, our body reacts as it does to joy. Not because we have it, we own it, but because God gives us a taste of it. Let's just 
see it a little bit. It's not ours, though. So it's fleeting. It leaves us. And we're back to that state of sorrow that we've always been in. So we have these brief distractions that God gives us in his good things in his attempt to draw us to himself. And in the, the fleetingness of those things and in those uh, things, inability to meet our expectations and our hopes, we can choose to do one of three things. We can deny their inability and just decide we're going to live for the things of this world even though we know it's fruitless. We can deny the good in those things and decide that there's really no way to get joy in this world. There's nothing in this world that is really truly good and there's nothing that can really meet the desires of my heart. Or we can decide if there's, I have a longing in my heart for deep joy and there's nothing in this world that can meet it, then just as how every other longing I have has something that meets it, I thirst because there's something that can quench my thirst. I hunger because there's something that can quench my hunger. I long for relationship because I, there is people to be in relationship with. That desire must have a, a match outside of this world. That desire for deep joy it cannot be found here must have something that quenches it but it's not in this world but we in our uh, counterfeit joy we live for the things of this world we hope in those things or we hope in the idea of not finding hope right i'm going to uh, i'm going to deal with the sorrow and the pain by saying that's who I am forever, so why, why even consider it any longer? To live in denial. Counterfeit joy is to live for the feelings based upon the things of this world. To live for the experiences that come with good things, but only in pursuit of them in the worldly way, not to find it in God. When we find it in God, those feelings don't have to go away. They can be real for us. Those experiences can be real for us for eternity. But counterfeit joy is to seek those things in the maker's creation and not in the maker. To hope in the blesser, the blessings and not the blesser. The opposite of joy is not mourning or sorrow. Again, those things can happen at the same time as one is joyful. The opposite of joy is a lack of hope. See, the disciples had, they've gone through this long journey with Christ, nearly three years, and they've come to understand him as powerful, as smart, as mighty, as humble, as loving, as caring. And they begin to trust him, but they haven't seen the vision that their trust in him is based not upon the things of this world yet. They're still expecting him to bring about a kingdom for them here, to reign over them here in a worldly way, to make this world their own. So when Christ says, I'm going to leave you, and as he's told them before, in, in, he, in ways that he v he's implied that he's going to die, they're sorrowful. But not sorrowful with joy, a sorrow without hope. I had trusted in you as my salvation in this world. And if you leave me, I don't know where to hope any longer. So the opposite of joy is not to be mourning, to not to have mourning or sorrow in your life. It's to have no hope, to mourn without hope, as we saw um, when they were told to not have the wrong idea about those who have gone to sleep, to mourn differently, to mourn with hope. How do we cultivate joy in our lives? Um, uh, essentially, Basically, joy is the result of the assurance of our salvation. It's the result of an assurance that 
Just as Christ said, he went away, he died, and he rose again. And in his rising again, he gives joy to those who accept that gift, to those who understand what happened in the death and the resurrection. Um, one of the great uh, theologians, J.C. Ryle, says, uh, Assurance goes far to set a child of God free from a painful kind of bondage, and it mi ministers mightily to his comfort, enables him to feel the great business of life is settled, the great debt is paid, the great disease is healed, the great work a finished work, and all other business, disease, debts, and works are by comparison small. So your great disease, your great deficiency in life, your lack of full joy is settled in Christ. You're comforted. There's nothing you have to do business-wise left. Your great debt is paid. The disease is healed. The work is finished. And all other earthly things that cause sorrow are small as the lady holding her newborn child. All the pain, the aches that are still there is small in comparison to the joy of that life. Lewis in uh, his uh, great sermon, uh, C.S. Lewis's great sermon, The Weight of Glory, um, teaches us about uh, cultivating joy. He says, uh, the schoolboy beginning the, to study the Greek grammar cannot look forward to his adult enjoyment of Sophocles as a lover looks forward to marriage. He has to begin by working for Marx to escape punishment or to please his parents, or at best in the hope of a future good he cannot presently imagine or even desire. But he gradually gets there. Enjoyment creeps in upon the mere drudgery. And nobody could point to a day or an hour when one ceases and the other began. See, we, we do everything we can to put ourselves in the position of, for the Holy Spirit to work. We need to put ourselves in positions to, of quietness to hear from the, so the Holy Spirit. We need to put ourselves in the Word so the Holy Spirit can bring its beauty through Christ to us. One of the ways to which God, has, the primary means to which God has designed the beauty to come out of the word of Christ, out of his word, is through the church. The church is his primary means in this world now that brings forth the beauty of his truth through the word. So we connect ourselves deeply to his church. We submit ourselves to their teaching and their edification. We say to them, look into my life. Speak to me about what is true and beautiful about who God is. And we allow the Spirit to grab our hearts through those things. And sometimes it's not always going to be done joyfully. It's going to be done with judgery. But the Holy Spirit, we are promised, is working. And the drudgery is going to become joy. And we're not always going to know when. We're not always going to uh, know exactly. If we might hear something from someone in the church or read something in the Word of God, and a year later, the Spirit is going to make it real. It's going to fulfill us with joy. But we have the promise that that is the reality of who we are. And we can trust it because... The God who is joyful and who takes joy in his creation died for the sinners in it so that he can give them his joy through his resurrection. And so, yeah, we, we read things like Proverbs 22, 17, and 18. Pay attention and turn your ears to the sayings of the wise. Apply your heart to what I teach. For it is pleasing when you keep them in your hearts and have them ready on your lips. And we understand that it's not always going to be pleasing. 
when we do those things. But we know the reality is, is that someday it will be nothing but pleasing. Those truths and those words that are on our lips will someday be nothing but joy to us. And so uh, understand what joy is. It is essential Christian doctrine. It is not a secondary thing. It is not a minor thing. It is not a consequence that is to be taken lightly. It is who God is. It is what God wanted for this world. It is what God died to bring to this world. It is what separates us from those who need that joy. And it is what allows us to say to a dying world, see in me what you need. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we thank you that you are a God of joy. You are a God who is so full of joy, so full in peace and contentment that you can make my sorrow yours. You can be acquainted with my grief so that you can die in my place, raised from the dead to new life so that you can bring me into new life. And I can have your joy. And we pray, Spirit, that you will make the works of Christ, the truth of the word, beautiful and real to us. Help us to submit to your word, to you, to your church, in a way that leads us into joy, into peace to happiness. Our hearts full, our desires met in you. Help us, therefore, to stand apart in this world and how we live, what we give value to. Help us to be selfless and not selfish. To be free in joy and not controlled by mourning and sorrow. us to mourn differently, to serve in love differently. May you draw the broken and hurting to you through your testimony in us. In your name we pray. Amen.